I asked for your topics. You guys gave me some great ones to cherry pick. So I'm going to hop in and talk at length about some of the stuff you wanted to hear me talk about for whatever reason. Um, I wanted to start with uh, probably one of the more meatier questions from Gary Arnold. And Gary writes, as you mentioned in a recent podcast, G.I. Joe, as we knew it in the 80s, is gone and wouldn't work in today's world. Can you expound on that? So, um, Real American Hero and G.I. Joe, as it was presented to me, it, it doesn't work in today's environment. And I think that the overwhelming biggest part of that is we're in a post-Iraq War world. And I think that the average American, there was a shift during the second Bush administration in that we view the government and we view the call to war with heavy cynicism. I don't think there are very many people that consider Afghanistan and Iraq and, and the still perpetuating wars that are going on there as being a good move. Um, I don't think anyone views them as something that was stabilizing or strategically important, and I don't think it it made anybody's lives safer. Um, so, because we have entire generations that are sort of born, you know, either sort of came up during the second Bush administration or were born post 9-11, we now in our DNA have this skepticism of the war machine and of government. And um, Real American Hero, G.I. Joe Real American Hero, is either inadvertently or sort of purposefully part of the Reagan uh, Jangoistic, uh, you know, America might equals right machine at the time. I mean, all media was, if you think of, you know, the Rambo film series or pretty much anything Schwarzenegger was in. Um, this was a common reoccurring theme. We really had, we had unity of thought as a country and, and as a global influence. We all sort of thought that these tough guys with uh, machine guns could defeat any, um, you know, any foreign uh, bad actors. And if you flash forward to now, um, you know, 40 years later, 35 years later, um, we're all highly skeptical of that. And I think that's actually a good thing. I think that, um, you know, I think we should be highly skeptical of the institutions that are bigger than us. And we should always view it with a critical eye. And um, that's why, you know, in that previous podcast I sort of touched on, if you were to do G.I. Joe today, it would almost have to be as a special unit that's investigating the military industrial complex because our enemies I mean I we don't have clearly defined enemies anymore and in some cases we're the enemies um, I think if you one of the best examples of where um, that sort of Reagan era uh, you know, America first I guess policy um, one of the best examples you can look up is the career of somebody like Elliot Abrams you know, just Google him and look at all the blood on his hands. And I think that that gives you a very good picture of while media and things like G.I. Joe, Real American Hero, were portraying this noble, 
largely sort of Christian, largely white uh, police force that was doing good in the world. You had people like Elliot Abrams behind the scenes sort of actually doing the real work. Um, and uh, that doesn't make for very good heroes. It doesn't make for very good stories to tell unless you have an opposing force that's going to sort of root out that corruption. So that's kind of a bummer of a topic to start off on, but I like where Gary's head is at. And, um, you know, I think that's that's part of the reason Real American Hero doesn't work. And I think that's also part of the reason why G.I. Joe fans, of which I consider myself one, um, they are sort of stuck in, a, you know, a, a brain state of the early 80s. And I think one is... People were probably happier then, these sort of hardcore Joe fans. I think that their lives were simpler then and happier, and they didn't have to deal with the sort of realities of uh, real life. And I also think, you know, on the flip side of uh, 9-11 and everything that's come after that, life's a little bit tougher, you know? And um, I, <laughs> some of the static and the uh, sort of unpleasantness that has come up in the Night of the Slice fan base, um, overwhelmingly, it's it's people who are also Joe fans, <laughs> which is a weird uh, sort of maybe it's a coincidence, but maybe it's not. You know, I think that um, there may be something to sort of being violently tied to nostalgia and uh, a sort of unwillingness to deal with the reality of today. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of correlation there with um, personality disorders, perhaps. Anyway, that's a heavy one. Um, let's go to a much lighter question. Um, so I, I thought I had answered this Brian Doran question previously, but I, I suspect that segment got cut off, so I'm happy to speak to it again. And Brian wants to talk about the Musketeer mold that I was working on last year. Uh, it appeared I was originally planning to unveil it at Decon, and then it vanished until the Action Figure of the Month Kickstarter, where it was one of the unlocks. So yeah, you you nailed it on the head. I brought the Musketeer sculpt to DesignerCon. I didn't have it on display. It was sort of, um, you know, I just showed a couple people it. It was in a glass display case. Um, or not a display case, but a sort of glass you know, display box. Um, the Musketeer was a very late unlock for the Action Figure of the Month campaign that we did not reach. And um, what is likely going to happen to all the unlocks we didn't get to for Action Figure of the Month is they're going to get rolled over to the 2020 campaign, which should start its enrollment in October. So um, we're, you know, hopefully those figures will get a second chance. I think. I'm going to stack the uh, early stages of the campaign with those higher tier ones that we didn't get to in the 2019 campaign. Uh, I would say also that Musketeer is being totally reworked. It is now likely going to be a figure that's a, you know, dowdy collaboration. So he's going to have a heavier hand in it and may sort of do his own releases. We'll see. Um... So some of the components of the figure will be intact in the final, but some of them are going to be changed, and I think for the better. We sort of we 
we're both able to identify another sort of genre of character that the Musketeer would lend itself to that both me and Matt really want to do. I don't think it's a very apparent one. You probably wouldn't be able to guess what genre that is. But um, I think it's going to be interesting. And I'm looking forward to sort of unveiling that character again. And his name, Musketeer, will likely change. Um, Moving on, Jonathan Brent Lawson, who's one of our newer patrons... Welcome, Jonathan. He asked a question that has been brought up before and and sort of been covered, but because he's a newbie, I'm more than happy to talk about it again. And that is the question of vehicles and playsets. He would even settle for cardboard cutout backgrounds. He'd love to see subsidy, motorcycles. Um, And then he also asked about the Knight of the Slice helmet, which some people have seen me wearing on Instagram, and I'll address both these issues happily. So, um, my policy for vehicles and playsets is it's a no-go. Uh, I love vehicles and playsets. Um, I would be more than happy to see them in the line. They are, you know, they can be three times to ten times as much expense in pre-production in order to make, and because of the higher price point, less of my customer base can buy them. So vehicles and playsets are a much, much tougher sell. And if you look at some of the other indie toy lines of the past five years that have dissipated quickly, it is typically when they move away from doing their core figures, which are profit generating, and they move into larger scale figures or more complex items um, like playsets or vehicles. Um, You know, I don't want to sort of name names, but if you go back and you look at some of this, the early successes of Kickstarter action figure lines and you look at who is now in the graveyard, there is typically a point in their career where they say, okay, we're successful at 4-inch scale, let's introduce a 12-inch figure or X, Y, and Z. Uh, and that usually tanks the company because your tooling costs are so much more extravagant on these items than they would be. Um, Most people then say, you know, what about cardboard, backdrops, and things like that? And that is a good sort of cheaper um, solution. But the problem I have is, you know, this is a one-man operation with some part-time help. And it takes me just as long to design a cardboard playground or, you know, play, uh, play set or backdrop as it would to develop a new four inch figure. And at the end of the day, I'm always going to choose to develop more four-inch figures as opposed to ancillary items because I, you know, I know they sell. And um, so that's why it's unlikely we will see vehicles or playsets anytime soon. Uh, regarding the full-size one-to-one scale Night of the Slice helmet, um, these are not something that are going to be on sale. There are a couple versions of them that have been made over the years. The most recent ones you guys have seen me wear are from Thousand Toys. They were graceful, gracious enough to um, send me the costumes that they had sort of made for some of the Japanese and Asian shows that they've set up at. So I'm very happy to have those. They will be on display at Toy Pizza Con on July 13th, and you guys can see the full costumes. But um, again, this is a super expensive item and it's not something I'm going to offer Um, but they make for fun parts of mythology 
And um, <clears throat> despite being very hot and claustrophobic, they are a lot of fun to wear. So look for a bunch of photos and content around those uh, coming out in time for Toy Pizza Con. I think that's going to be really good. Uh, scrolling through this list, uh, let's see here. Uh, Travic McLarson asks, I'd like to hear about old and current toy lines, independent or otherwise, that you feel deserve more love. I'm always interested in finding new series to collect. <clears throat> so I think this is a, a perfect question uh, because I one of my favorite three and three quarter inch scale lines is a series of candy toys from, I believe it's from Bandai, and they are based on Monster Hunter. And these are really well-articulated um, figures of some of the Monster Hunter characters. And I'm not a, uh, I'm not sort of great at Monster Hunter lore. I've only played one of the games for a couple minutes, but I've always loved the character designs. Um, and they have these kind of knight characters that have huge cannons and rifles and bows and arrows. I'm going to post a picture when I post this in the comments of of these figures in question. I love these figures, and I actually have stockpiled quite a few of them. And I'm going to sell them at uh, Toy Pizza Con. I'll also make sure there's some available online for those who can't attend. But I'm really excited for you guys to own some of these figures. They're not easy to come by, but I did find a small cache of them at Superfest. And I was like, I got to get these, and I got to get them out to my squire. So... Uh, look forward to those coming soon. I think that's a great line. I, I don't actually know what the subline is called. I'll do some research and see if I can't pull that up. But that's a fantastic, obscure toy line that I don't think most people know about that um, to me is really great. And it, and they complement Nights of Slice rather well. Lee Murlock asks, What ideas, concepts... Have you had for Knights of the Slice that you love but rejected for being too impractical or unsuitable or just too weird to produce? Um, there's tons of them, but I think that the the one that I always think a lot about is Drew Wise's Pixel Knight, which was an unlock goal for the original Kickstarter campaign. You can go back and, and sort of look through the original Kickstarter campaign from a few years ago, and you'll see Drew's artwork for the Pixel Knight. Essentially, we were... We had overly ambitious ideas to do a sort of pixelized color scheme that would blend lime, brick, and teal together on a clear night base. Um, having sort of been away from the production line and from China for many years, I really didn't have a good read on what current costs were for things like that. So it became apparent it was just going to be way too expensive to do it would have ended up being a $50 figure <laughs> um, but uh, that idea was sort of an old recycled bit from a Jazzwares Mega Man figure we had developed which was kind of a clear figure with an internal skeleton that was a paper cutout and then some kind of pixelization tampo prints on top um, that of course proved to be too expensive as well and I don't think we got license or approval on that so um that that's the one that kind of always pops in my mind and Drew did a couple different takes on it and we found some you know different paths we could kind of go down but ultimately um 
we just couldn't make it work. And it's just one of those figures that until sort of technology presents itself in a way that's meaningful, um, I don't think it's a figure we're going to be able to make. But it's one that I think about a lot. Um, move, you know, building off of that in terms of like production and interesting features and things like that, Javier Bedford asks about color changing and how possible it is for Knight's figures. Um, it's entirely possible. It's um, it's something that will happen eventually, but it's not something I have on order currently. So um, we'll just sort of wait and see. But it is on my short list of figures to do. So hopefully sometime soon that kicks into full gear. Um, Cliff asks a, a really deep question about what am I? What were my misconceptions about starting my own toy line, and the trials and tribulations? Um, it's such a, it's such a vast question, and there's so much that goes into it. But I, I think that, um, I think that it's near impossible to do. And Knights of the Slice only exists because there were a couple really crazy, fortuitous, happy accidents that happened along the way that allowed us to survive. And I would say that um, this current tariff situation, the trade war going on with China, where they've just highlighted toys as being a category that is going to be submitted to at least 25% tariff increase, um, this makes it even more impossible. So I wouldn't recommend anyone start a toy company right now. Um, the the sort of happy accidents and things like that, that that came through that allowed Knights of the Slice to survive. One was... So we had sort of placed the line in Hastings, you know, a, a small retail chain, mostly in the Midwest. And the Hastings order helped keep the unit cost down for wave one and that was one of the only reasons that I was able to fulfill the Kickstarter we actually raised less money than I needed and it was in dire straits and Hastings came along they cut a big order and that allowed the unit cost to come down on everything so that was sort of happy accident number one that allowed nice size to happen even though it was sort of stillborn then accident number two was the figures didn't sell at Hastings and I was looking at a huge markdown situation, tens of thousands of dollars. It was going to be, it was going to put it out of business. There's no question. And this was within three or four months of the line shipping. So uh, again, the, a line that shouldn't have existed was sort of on the chopping block yet again. And I was ready to pack it up. And then uh, in a sad sort of break... Hastings went out of business and uh, the buyer I worked with was nowhere to be found. He'd, he'd left the company and I had no way to buy the old inventory and I had no way to settle up the debt of uh, the unsold goods. So it sort of disappeared into the ether and that markdown bill from Hastings would have 100% collapsed. Knights uh, the Slice yet again. And so, you know, just in the first couple months of the line, 
there were many sort of tribulations that came up that should have flattened us and it shouldn't have worked. But somehow we sort of eked out a living. And back in those days, I had maybe a couple dozen customers, you know. I had uh, almost 200 sort of Kickstarter backers, but a lot of those were casual fans or friends and family. There was really only, you know, there was a dozen or so Night of the Slice hardcore fans. And so I'm very thankful now that's not the case and our numbers are strong and, um, you know, I think there's a very good chance we will weather this trade war because we have a dedicated enough fan base and I'm diversified in a bunch of different SKUs and add a bunch of different vendors. Um, I can't say the same for the other independent toy makers out there. I think that, you know, while this trade war is not going to be forever, I don't know if all the other toy lines from indie people that I buy and love are going to make it. I think it's really, it's a scary environment out there. And um, I already, I just got sent an invoice that, you know, had jacked up the unit cost, even though the unit cost was agreed upon in January. Doesn't matter. These suppliers, they're not taking any chances. Um, and I think it's its bad all around for everybody. Uh, so, I hope um, there's a sea change coming when it comes to government because uh, not a lot of good's happening. I'll say that much. James Davis asks, Future story ideas. World building is my favorite part. This is... This is an amazing question. I love this question. I don't know if I can encapsulate every thought I have about this question, but um, as I've sort of discussed before, I am a toy maker because I'm a frustrated comic book artist, right? I was not good enough, I was not studious enough to hone my craft in sequential art uh, to be able to share my stories that way. And But I did understand toy design, and I did have the contacts to make a toy line. So uh, the thing that gets me out of bed every morning is telling the story of Knights of the Slice and building that world. And um, what I really sort of look forward to is that portion of it, even more so than the toy-making part, which is great too. In terms of future story ideas, um, I want to go back to Subcity. I want to do that this summer and have some releases that are themed to that I love spending time in Subsidy um, I want to really explore the Vector world which is a sort of massive online multiplayer platform in the world of Nice of the Slice but it is also the internet and the, the collective unconsciousness Think of it as a living internet, and that sort of gets you to the place of the Vector world. And uh, there's going to be a couple characters that herald us through the Vector world, and that's going to be Cyber Mama and Radic, the Vector Detective. I think that's what his tagline is. So we're going to start dwelling into the world that was touched on a little bit with characters like Integer, who would sort of go into a micronized uh, sort of hard drive world um, it's been in the background all along 
and it is part of the technology that sort of not only fuels the world in nicest slice, but also humanity in some respects. So um, the vector world is going to be very interesting, and that gives us a lot of ideas about game theory to play with, a lot of different settings. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to that, and uh, I could, you know, I could go on and on about other aspirations for storylines, but I think that's kind of the most immediate one. I'm also looking forward to exploring Device Ninja, who they are, how they fit into the world of Knights of the Slice, and what the possible sort of customizations are for that character. And we're getting very close to to his debut. Um, yeah, so there you have it. So that's just a, a quick little dive in. I love the topics you guys gave me. I'm going to come back to this thread later and pick up some of the other suggestions and talk at length about them, uh, including Trevor Peckis's question about Jazzwares Trigon, which is a whole story in and of itself that you guys are really going to like hearing. So uh, if I didn't get to you this pod, don't worry. I will be back. And don't forget to uh, follow the Toy Pizza Con event page on Facebook. It is July 13th. Come in person or tune in online. You don't want to miss it. And the only thing left to say is pizza out. <laughs>